Okay, find Hosea if you have your copy of Scripture. If you get the first one on your road to find Hosea, get a prize. Ezekiel, then Daniel, and Hosea. In the Old Testament, past Psalms and Proverbs and Jeremiah is Hosea. In a bar in Toledo, across from the depot, on a bar stool, she took off her ring. I thought I'd get closer, so I walked on over and sat down and asked her her name. That's how I met Carrie some years ago. (laughs) No, that's not true, and... I'm not confessing anything. That's an, old, that's an old Kenny Rogers song. Anybody know the name of it? You picked a, one, one person with some class here, and you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. That's right. The man sitting in a bar in Toledo, was. he saw the woman take off her wedding ring, assumed that she was prepared to default on her wedding vows, and So he moved over and tried to pick her up. But before he could get her out of the joint, a big giant of a man came in the door and walked toward them. His big hands were calloused. He looked like a mountain. For a minute, I thought I was dead, Kenny Rogers sang. But he started shaking. His big heart was breaking. He turned to the woman and said, You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. Four hungry children and a crop in the field. I've had some bad times, lived through some sad times, but this time the hurting won't heal. You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. That old Kenny Rogers song could almost be the theme song for the story we're going to study for the next uh, three weeks, the story of Hosea and his wife, his wandering wife, Gomer. And let me just go ahead and say what you're thinking. That is that the name you would choose for a two-timing woman would probably not be Gomer. That just wouldn't fit in a country music song, would it? But but that's her that's her name. The story that is or the, the Bible book that bears Hosea's name is is one of the most intriguing books in all the Bible. It weaves together two stories: the story of Gomer, this wandering wife of Hosea, and the and the people of Israel, the wandering people, and the, the unfailing love of Hosea, and the unfailing love of God. Hosea lived in the 8th century. He followed Amos, his prophet predecessor, who had warned the people of Israel, particularly the northern kingdom, that if they did not uh, abandon their wanderings, if they didn't straighten up, if they didn't quit worshiping the pagan gods, if they didn't abandon their unethical business practices, that they would suffer the consequences. And now Hosea lives in that time in essentially the unraveling of the northern kingdom. Hosea, illumined by God's Spirit, recognized the uncanny parallels between the story of of his marriage and the story of the people of Israel. 
We read from chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, if you have your Bibles open. 1, verses 2 and 3. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So Hosea married Gomer, daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore a son. Some students of the Old Testament believe that that Hosea did not know when he married Gomer, did not know her pornographic past or her perpetual propensity for promiscuity, but rather he figured it out later. Remember, he's he's writing backwards. He's already lived through the story. He's He's telling it after the fact. So maybe he knew, maybe he didn't know. Either way, they they married, they had a son named Jezreel. They looked like the the typical small family, happy family of three. But there there was a sign that everything wasn't going beautifully when the second child has an unusual name, loosely translated, does not know a father's love. And then the fact, or, or the, the at least the assumption that things had gone bad, badly, was reflected in the third name of the child uh, when Hosea named that third child, not my people, which was perhaps, perhaps a, a symbol that this was, this was not his biological child. It wasn't long until Gomer was gone, gone from a husband who loved her and children who needed her. Hosea had to be heartbroken and humiliated, left now to be the father and mother to three children, and at least one of whom was probably not his biological child. And I want to to pull over just for a moment and speak to those of you who are parents in what we might call a non-traditional family. Some of you are or foster parents and, and adoptive parents. You didn't have to do that. But I want to tell you, you have my admiration and my applause. I want to encourage you. Some of you are raising a son or daughter or sons and daughters on your own by yourself. You didn't choose that. It was not of your own making. It was not something that you wanted. But you're doing the, the very best you can do. I want to encourage you, I want to applaud you, I want to thank you for what you're doing. Some of you are stepdads and stepmoms. My favorite country music singer, Brad Paisley, uh, sings a song that says that the key line says, I hope I'm half the dad he didn't have to be, about his stepdad who married his single mom. Some of you are doing a good job, Uh, you're doing the very best you can. And that's hard. Sometimes it's complicated, I know. But I want you to know you have my applause, my appreciation, my encouragement for doing what you're doing. Hosea is left behind to be the mother and father to three children. Back to the story. Chapter 3 now, if you have your Bibles open. We're going to read in chapter 3, the Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. 
Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So what's the deal with the raisin cakes? (laughs) Some of you have some little Debbie raisin cakes in your pantry, I'm sure. What's the deal with the raisin cakes? Well, we don't quite know. We know that they were a luxury. And because he calls them sacred raisin cakes, it's a hint that they were probably used in the, the worship of pagans, that, that some, somehow in idolatrous worship they offered as offerings raisin cakes. That's the best we know. Don't feel guilty about your little Debbies. Let's go on. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same toward you. In the days of the Old Testament, adultery was more than a cultural taboo. In the days of the Old Testament, they believed, and it's true, that that a strong nation, a strong community depends on strong homes, strong families. And so, the truth is, the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy said that, that Hosea could have had Gomer stoned, but he didn't. His friends must have said to Hosea, she's hopeless, she's she's incorrigible, she's she's irredeemable, forget her. But he didn't. Hosea must have thought, I'll make her pay for doing what she's done to our family. But he didn't. Hosea did what I find hard to imagine. He followed his wife's trail uh, to the Notel Motel district of Samaria. And he paid for her freedom, a price that I understand was the price that one would have paid for the freedom of someone who was being held in slavery. So probably her adulterous choices resulted in her being what we would now say trafficked. And we'll talk more about that next week. He paid an amount for her redemption and thus symbolized the love of God. Remember the the story, the book of Hosea weaves together these two stories, the story of an adulterous woman and of, of an unfaithful people and a faithful husband and a faithful God. George Matheson wrote a hymn that we love titled, O Love That Will Not, wrote a hymn titled, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. That's a beautiful sentiment, is it not? But is it true? Is it true that God will never let us go? In the book of Romans, in the first chapter, three times, is this haunting, chilling phrase. God gave them up, or as some translations say, God gave them over to their shameful desires. It's been said that's the most frightening phrase in all the Bible, much more frightening than God pursuing us with His wrath, is His willingness to say, you've turned a deaf ear to my wooing, to my warning, you've made your bed, now lie in it. Is that possible? Is it possible that there is a a line, a, a Rubicon of sorts? beyond which there's no turning back. There's an old poem, there is a time we know not when, a place we know not where, that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's 
patience and his wrath. Is it possible that there's a line beyond which God will not pursue us? A line beyond which, he says, you have made your choice. It's a frightening thought, and frankly, I, I don't know the, the answer. I will tell you, though, which way I, I lean. When I'm confused about the ways of the Almighty, I think about what I believe to be His, His primary characteristic, and that's grace. God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting, relentless, tenacious love. Grace. There's a story told about C.S. Lewis, you know, the, the famous British Christian literary genius in a room where scholars were debating the uniquenesses of each of the world's great religions. They were wondering about the uniqueness of the Christian faith, what makes it different from others. Someone suggested the idea of incarnation. After all, God is incarnate. He is embodied in our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so someone suggested incarnation, but others said, you know, there are other religions that have some sort of story of some sort of incarnation, although no other founder of any religion is the incarnation of God. They said, you know, there are stories of incarnation, so it's not, it's not that. And, and then someone said resurrection. The Lord Jesus, the founder of the Christian faith, was dead and, and then was resurrected. But others said, well, you know, there's no founder who was resurrected of any religion. However, there are other kind of peripheral stories of resurrection, so that's not the uniqueness. And C.S. Lewis said, oh, you're talking about the uniqueness of the Christian faith. Well, that's easy. It's grace. God's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, and unrelenting love. Apparently, there's nothing in any other religion. Lots of religions have rules. But in no other faith is God so, well, gracious. Remember, it's unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, and unrelenting. Relentless. Francis Thompson was, a, was an addict, addicted to opium. And he ran from God. He, he wrote a poem in 1893 titled, The Hound of Heaven. He talked about how God he chased him. He said, I fled him down the days. I fled him down the nights. I fled him down the arches of the years. Until, like that hound of heaven, that, that tenacious hound after a rabbit, God wouldn't give up on him and finally caught him, changed his life. He became a, a Roman Catholic priest. And he, and he wrote that beautiful poem, The Hound of Heaven. Ah, love that would not let him go. So Hosea weaves together these two compelling stories of a woman who's unfaithful and a, a husband that would, that would pay for her redemption and an unfaithful people and a God who would, whose love would not let them go. The late Nell Parsons was a member of our church and a good friend of ours. She wrote a powerful book titled, The Big Bay Horse Doesn't Live Here Anymore. It's the story of Nell's decision at age 59 to buy a horse and start showing that horse. 
So she looked around, she and her husband looked around until they finally found the horse of her dreams, as it were. It was a big, tall, dark bay, almost black, award-winning quarter horse named Marlon, M-A-R-L-O-N. Now, the people warned Nell about Marlon. He was a mean horse. They were sure, even though nobody quite knew all his story, they, they were sure that he'd been mistreated, that he'd been beaten when he was young, and so he trusted no one. He was skittish. He was mad all the time. ears laid back. But it was love at first sight for Nell, and all those warnings didn't matter. She was warned that he was unpredictable. She was warned that he was dangerous. But she loved him anyway. He would damage his stall and threaten those who came near him. But Nell wouldn't quit on him. Her family said, he's hopeless, he's incorrigible, he's irredeemable, let him go. But Nell wouldn't quit on him. He threw her once. She got up, dusted herself off, made sure nothing was broken, and got right back on him. Nell wouldn't quit on him. He just needs someone on his side, Nell would say. He needs someone to understand him. Once at a horse show in the adjacent stall, the trainer was mistreating, was beating the horse, and it was as if Marlon was having flashbacks, suffering from PTSD, having these flashbacks, and and he was going crazy, and so Nell led him outside. He'd put his head up against me, she wrote. And hold it there for a minute or two. In that moment, I believe he was thanking me for being the truest friend he had. Eventually, Nell wrote, I had taught him to trust and love again after his first seven years of not being treated well. And it paid off. Before the end of the book, Nell would write, Marlon, my buddy, my baby, and my friend helped me survive the hardest 18 months of my life. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole story. The book is available on Amazon, and you can read for yourself, but I will tell you this. When I closed the book after finishing the last page, I had taken the car to get it worked on. I was at a mechanic shop, sitting in one of those little waiting rooms, doing like this so that people couldn't see me, the tears, and I called Nell. I walked outside, and I called her, and when she said hello, I said, doggone it, Nell, you made me cry. Now, I know that horses aren't people, but there are a couple of powerful lessons from that story. Number one, don't ever give up on anybody. I know that it seems that some people will never change, but there are enough beautiful stories of transformation to tell us don't ever give up on anybody. Please hear me, you don't have to live in a, in, a, in a harmful relationship. You should not remain in an abusive relationship. Please hear me. But don't ever stop hoping 
Don't ever stop loving. Don't ever stop praying for that person who appears that he or she never will change. Don't ever give up on anybody. The second big lesson, of course, is that God doesn't give up on us. Marlin-like though we are, Gomer-like though we are, prodigal son, prodigal daughter-like though we are, God's grace is unconditional and undeserved and unlimited, and it is unrelenting. And so if you have wandered, if you have wandered, and if somebody has given up on you, someone you, someone whose approval you would give anything to enjoy, there's somebody you'd, you'd give anything to hear them say, add away. If somebody has given up on you, please know that, that he who breathed life into you, he who shaped you in your mother's womb, your Father in heaven has not given up on you. And if, if you will pay attention, I believe you will sense Francis Thompson, who wrote The Hound of Heaven, said, I could sense the shade or the shadow, we might say, of his outstretched hand. If you pay attention, I believe you'll sense the shadow of his, of his outstretched hand. If you'll pay attention, I think you'll sense the warmth of his grace. If you'll pay attention, I believe you will hear the words that Gomer couldn't have ever dreamed she'd hear. The voice of one who loved her, saying, Come home.